Let's pray. May those words, God, not just come from our lips. May they not just be empty, meaningless, thoughtless words. But may we mean what we have just sung from our hearts. All I have is Jesus. He is all I need. He is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. May that be true in every heart here this morning. May we love our Jesus with everything we are and everything we have. And may we this morning, as we hear your word, may we be so taken with Jesus that when we walk out of this room this morning, we are thinking higher thoughts of him and we have fallen deeper in love with him. Show us Christ in all of his glory. And may now you love your people well through me as I open your word to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. Thank you for singing so well. And I invite you to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, this morning to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we, we want you to be able to, to hold God's Word in your hands this morning, to see with your own eyes what God has said and what He has preserved for us down through the centuries. It is so important that you see that what I am preaching this morning is what God has said and not what I have said. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. Or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible, the church Bible, in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1009 in the church Bible this morning. We have reached a milestone in our study of Mark's gospel. So if you're new here, we've been walking through Mark's gospel since January of 2022, and we're not done yet. But this is installment number 50 in our study of Mark's gospel. Number 50, you have endured well. And I want to say that because you've got more to endure, all right? So I want to encourage you in that. But this is part 50, and we find ourselves right now in the middle of Mark chapter 12 where Jesus is being questioned by the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, he is asked a fourth question. These are rapid-fire questions coming at Jesus. And let's see how Jesus responds to this scribe's question as Jesus lives his life on purpose and he's making his way to the cross on purpose when this goes down in the temple on the Passion Week and here's what we read in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. That is, all these different religious leaders disputing with Jesus. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, this scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, well, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Because David himself and the Holy Spirit declared from Psalm 110, Jesus quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard Jesus gladly. This is the word of our God. When I graduated from high school, In 1990, Adrian High School in southern Missouri, I was .14 grade points away from graduating as valedictorian. And I was .05 grade points away from being salutatorian. Now, I don't say that to you this morning to impress you. Because even though I was third in my class, I was barely in the top 10% of my class because there were only 37 other seniors who graduated with me. And then, during a varsity basketball game my senior year, I scored 48 points. The school record, all-time school record, was 50. Two points away. I don't tell you that this morning so that you'll think highly of me or come up and get my autograph after the service. (laughs) I don't tell you this to get kudos or even to get your sympathy because nobody remembers, except for me, nobody cares about either of those. I share those things with you just to acknowledge this morning that whether in academics or athletics, my high school career could be summed up in a single word. Close. Close. But as they say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And being close is what this scene in Mark chapter 12 is all about. That's a big idea Jesus is teaching us here. You see, you can be close to God's kingdom But close isn't close enough. You can be close, but not in God's kingdom. And that's something each of us in this room this morning needs to hear. From the longest tenured member here to the first time guest here to the guy standing behind the pulpit here, this text is for all of us. Because like this scribe, We can know the right answers and be asking the right questions. We can be in the right place, hanging out with the right people. We can listen to Jesus because we respect Jesus and even agree with Jesus and still be on the outside looking in on Jesus. 
listen, God's kingdom isn't about how much you know or how hard you try. It isn't about who your parents are or what they believe. It isn't even about who you are and what you do. It's always and only about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. It's about knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. It's about being in a real living relationship with Jesus. And that's what this scribe is missing. He's missing Jesus. Even though on Tuesday of the Passion Week, he's been in the temple hanging around Jesus probably all day. He's heard what's gone down there. He's heard the Sadducees attempting to trip up Jesus with a question on the resurrection. He's been privy to the Pharisees and the Herodians' question about taxes. He's probably even been there earlier in the day to hear the question from the elders and the chief priests and some of the other scribes when they asked Jesus, who gives you the right to say what you're saying and to do what you're doing. Who do you think you are? But this scribe hasn't just been listening in on the questions Jesus has been asked. This scribe has been impressed with the answers Jesus has been giving. And so he himself now approaches Jesus to ask his own question. Now, before we get to that question, I think it would be helpful if we had a working knowledge of who a scribe was and what a scribe did. The scribes were the, scribes were the professional lawmen of Jesus' day. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that they were federal agents or cops. I mean that they were the guys who majored on all the Old Testament laws. They studied these laws. They wrote books about these laws. They discussed these laws ad nauseum. These were the guys that ensured that everyone else was always keeping these laws. Like that little kid back in third grade who was the class tattletale. These guys were the rules police. And if you didn't live up to these laws, they would let you know. I mean, can you imagine how much fun it must have been to be married to a scribe? Or to have a scribe as a dad? Or a grandpa. I mean, I just bet these guys were a blast to be around at a church picnic. But this scribe, he doesn't seem to be that way. He seems to be different. He seems to approach Jesus genuinely and sincerely when he says, Okay, Jesus, there's something I'd really like to get your perspective on. I mean, I've been hanging around you all day. I've heard the questions you've been asked. I'm listening to the answers you've been giving. So... Which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the biggie? Which one is top dog? Which one is numero uno? It's the kind of question that these scribes would debate as they were having their morning coffee at Starbucks, kind of like we debate who's better, socks or the Cubs? Or Bach or Beethoven? Or Raising Cane's or Chick-fil-A. That's these scribes. This is what they do 24-7. They're always and only about the law. And that's saying something because they had actually come up with 613 commandments. 
You say, why 613? Well, if you go back and read the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, by the way, how many of you do that quite often? But if you go back and read the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, the Decalogue, there are 613 Hebrew letters, not all different letters, but letters that comprise those Ten Commandments. And so these guys decided that there should be 613 laws. Interestingly, 248 of those laws were positive, do this kind of laws, while 365 were negative, don't do this kind of laws. Why 365? One for each day of the year. That's these guys. This is the context in which Jesus is asked by this scribe, which commandment is the most important of all? And and Jesus gives the answer. The most important commandment, the biggie, the command of all commands is this. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 and 4. It's what Jews even to this day refer to as the Shema, which in Hebrew means to hear or to listen up or to pay attention. So anytime I read this text, I can hear my father in my my mind saying, Kenneth Shema. Now, he never really said that, but he always said, Kenneth, pay attention. That's what Shema means. Behold, look, hear. And for every Jewish child, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 and 4, is the very first scripture they would have ever memorized in Awana, in Sunday school, wherever it was. This is there, John 3, verse 16. So there would have been a Shema guy holding up a cardboard sign behind the goalposts of football games. The Shema would have been plastered all over the He Gets Us billboards that line the the interstates in Israel. The Shema would have been the verses that you found on all that wall decor at the Jerusalem Hobby Lobby. And so it isn't a surprise that Jesus answers this scribe's question by saying, you remember the Shema? Remember Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 and 4? There is one God... There aren't lots of gods, there aren't a few gods or even two gods. There is a one and only God whose number one command is that you love Him. His number one command is not that you earn His love, but that you love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You love him with everything you are and everything you have from the top of your head to the tips of your toes. Wherever you are, whomever you're with, whatever you're doing, you love God. You say, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is love? Here is a definition of love for you. Love is seeking the highest good of another. And when it comes to our relationship with God, that means love is seeking his highest good glory. But that's not all Jesus says as he responds to this scribe's question. He says that there's a second command that's right up there with the first. That these two commands go together like love and marriage and a horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other. And so Jesus says, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus is quoting from Leviticus. Now, how many of you in this room, when you are reading your Bible through, you're like, I can't wait to get to Leviticus. 
You know, when I, I can just hear, I mean, I hear it when I'm preaching. And anytime I say Leviticus, the air just kind of leaves the room. Because everybody, when you're reading through your Bible, the last book you want to read, the one that you, you aren't looking forward to at all is, is the book of Leviticus. You know why? Because it's all about the priesthood and the tabernacle and all the laws about how tall the curtains are to be and what color they're to be and how, how um, wide they are to be and, and the priests and their clothing and how often they're to wash their hands, all of that. But it's from Leviticus 19 verse 18 that Jesus quotes here. And he says, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And the Jews would have been familiar with this verse as well. But no one had put these two commands together like Jesus does here. Now, that doesn't mean that what Jesus is doing here is controversial. I mean, even today, if you say to someone, tomorrow at work, the two big commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. They're going to say, yeah, I get that. I didn't think it was love God and hate your neighbor. We all get that these are the first things, the core stuff, the weightiest matters. And so does this scribe. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, you're right. Jesus, you nailed it. And that's surprising. It's not surprising that Jesus was right, but that the scribe would say so out loud. Because in our study of Mark's gospel, we've learned that the scribes are not card-carrying members of the Jesus fan club. Not at all. But this scribe is different. This scribe has the guts to say out loud, you're correct, Jesus. Loving God and loving others is even more important than getting all the sacrifices right. And that's saying something for this guy to say that. Because the scribes worked tirelessly at ensuring that all the sacrifice, all the sacrifices, all the sacrifice laws were kept, that they were followed to a T, especially here in the temple at Passover. And so for this guy to say, you know, Jesus, all the laws about all the sacrifices, that's my specialty. That's my sweet spot. But loving God and your neighbor is more important than anything and everything we could sacrifice to him and for him. You believe that? Do you believe that this morning? That these two commands are more important than the sacrifices you make for God and to God. You see, so many people today think of God as a cosmic killjoy who's all about getting us to give up all our money and our stuff and our fun. No. No. There's one thing God is after, and that's your heart. So does he have your heart? Does he have all of your heart? Here's how you know if he does. It's when the sacrifices you make in loving him and obeying him and giving to him, it's when all of that, none of that feels like sacrifice. Instead, it's a delight. 
It's a joy. It's an honor. It's a privilege. It's like back in the Old Testament when a man named Jacob was working for a man named Laban. And Jacob was working for Laban for seven years, serving him 24-7, 365, seven long years. Why? Just to get Laban's blessing so that he could marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. Every morning, Jacob would get up. He would splash water all over his face, and he'd say, you know what? I can't wait to go to work and to serve Laban today. Because I so love Rachel. And she's going to be mine. That's why every husband in this room should write Genesis 29 verse 20 in every anniversary card to your wife. You will make her happy. Because here's what Genesis 29 verse 20 says. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. He sacrificed seven years every day. He served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days. Why? Because of the love he had for her. The long days, the hard work did not feel like long days or hard work because that's what love is and that's what love does. And this scribe knows that. He knows that God doesn't want dead, duty-driven, heartless sacrifice. He wants us. He wants our heart. He wants our affections. He wants our joy. That's why in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I, I desire that you know me rather than burnt offerings. And this scribe doesn't just know what God says. This scribe believes what God says. He's an unusually kind and wise scribe. And so Jesus says to him, Mr. Scribe, you've answered wisely. You're so close to the kingdom. You're so close to being on God's team. I mean, you are like really, really close here. But you aren't in. And that's when in the crowd you could have heard a pin drop. That's when you would have seen jaws drop and eyebrows raise and mouths shut. It's the end of verse 34. After this, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. The people are looking at one another and they're, and they're thinking, you know, we're done. What other questions are left to ask? I don't think there's really any point in continuing because, well, if, if this guy's not in, then who is? Just look at all this guy has going for him. He, he gets the great commandment, right? He understands that there is one God who created the universe and rules and reigns over the universe. And, and more than anything else, this guy wants to love this God. With everything he is and everything he has. And he wants to love others. He wants to be a good neighbor by helping old ladies across the street. He wants to shovel his neighbor's driveway. He wants to bring in his trash receptacle on trash day and not leave it at the curb for three days. He wants to do all of that. 
He wants to be committed to his neighbor, as committed to his neighbor as he is to himself because he understands that we can dot every I and cross every T when it comes to sacrificing to God and obeying God. But if it isn't driven by love, it's worthless. He understands that we can come to church every Sunday. We can give an offering every Sunday. We can sing songs to God and about God But if I don't love God and my neighbor, it's empty. It's like the soap bubbles the kids like to blow and then reach out and grab and poof, they're gone. This guy knows it's possible to be at the right place doing the right things so that you look like you're close to God while your heart is actually far away from him. This guy gets all of that. And that's why Jesus says, hey, I know you're not like the other scribes. You've got so much going for you. You're actually close, like really close to God's kingdom, but you're still on the outside looking in. You aren't in the family room you're still out in the garage. And maybe this is a lot like you. You haven't completely sold out to Jesus. You know, you're here, you're here week after week, sitting with the people of Jesus, singing songs to Jesus, listening to all these stories about Jesus. You're close. You aren't far from the kingdom. But there's a flip side to that. Because you aren't in. You're like this guy. Everybody thinks he's in. He thinks he's in. I mean, the other scribes wouldn't touch Jesus with a 39 and a half foot pole. But this guy's a fan of Jesus. He's interested in learning about Jesus and hearing from Jesus because he really, really likes Jesus. Does that sound like you? Do you see yourself And the black letters on this white page. You've got so much going for you. You're close. But here's the thing. You can be close, really, really close. And not in. Because like this guy, there's one thing you're missing. What is it? What is it that's missing? Jesus is going to tell us by asking his question. Verse 35. Jesus asks, okay, so how can you scribes say, how can you scribes say that the Christ, and you'll notice the Christ, that's a reference to the Messiah, how can you say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, in 21st century America, this doesn't make a lot of sense, and so let's travel back a few centuries and half a world away Because every Jew knows that the Messiah is a descendant of David. But every Jew also thinks that a descendant could never be greater than their ancestor. And certainly not Lord of their ancestor. But Jesus is going to blow away that misconception by saying, let's remember for a moment what David wrote back in Psalm 110. When he writes, the Lord says to my Lord... Now, here's where I really need you to stick with me, all right? 
Everybody tuned in? All right, there's one of you, okay? (laughs) So really stick with me here. The Lord says to my Lord. So that is the Lord God, the Father, saying to the Lord, the Son, the Messiah, Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. He will be a man, but he will be greater than David because Messiah will be God. He will sit at the Father's right hand. Now, what that implies, what Jesus is implying here is that the Messiah is going to die and the Messiah is going to be buried and the Messiah is going to rise again and then the, the Messiah is going to ascend to the Father in heaven and he is going to sit at the Father's right hand, the throne of this universe, until all of his enemies are crushed under his feet. And so Messiah's reign will be greater than David's reign because Messiah's reign won't just extend to the farthest borders of Israel like David's reign. Messiah's reign will bust through all geographical borders and will extend to the farthest reaches of the universe, including invading the depths of people's hearts. So Jesus won't just reign politically. He will reign spiritually. He will conquer people's hearts with his love and bring them from the garage into the family room and into a relationship with God. And when Jesus says this, even though the crowd doesn't get all that Jesus is saying, they're blown away by what Jesus is saying. Look at it. They're they're glad and they're thrilled Because they realize somehow, some way, their concept of the Messiah has been way too small. He'll be so much more than they had ever hoped or dreamed or prayed. And what Jesus is doing here is both subtle and brilliant. He's saying this. He's saying, okay, Mr. Scribe, you've said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything you are. So, Mr. Scribe, who is the Lord your God? It's me. It's me. I am both David's son and David's Lord. I am the Messiah. I am God. And so to love God means that you love and trust in me. And that's what the scribe is missing. He's so close to the kingdom, but he isn't in. Because the only way in is through Jesus. It's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the one and only way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I need to ask this morning, are you in? Or are you just close? Because close isn't close enough. There's only one way to get into the kingdom. There's only one way to move from the garage to the family room. And that's Jesus. He's the door. You must enter. And we need Jesus because none of us has perfectly kept the great commandment. None of us. 
has loved God with everything we are and everything we have. None of us has perfectly loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. None of us. If we had, then why did Jesus have to die? Because you know what's going to happen to Jesus in 48 hours from this scene? He's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be arrested. And do you know the charge that they're going to hang on Jesus? Is the charge that he did not love God the Father with all his heart and soul and mind and strength because he was a blasphemer and a mocker and a sinner. And Jesus will die as though he had hated the Father. And he will die in the place of those who have. The perfect great commandment law keeper will die in the place of great commandment law breakers. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made Jesus to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin. The one who always had loved God perfectly. The Father perfectly. And loved his neighbor perfectly. God the Father will treat God the Son as though God the Son had failed like we have. And God the Father will lay our failures and our sins on His Son. All the times we didn't love God or our neighbor. And Jesus will die. Why? Look at the verse. God made Jesus to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus dies so that His perfect great commandment law-keeping could be credited to our eternal account. Because at the cross, our great commandment law-breaking is credited to His account. Wow. What love is that? But here's the thing. The only way that happens in my eternal account that, that Jesus' perfect great commandment law-keeping is credited to me is what Romans 10 verse 9 says. If I will confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised Him from the dead, I will be saved. That's it. We can't work our way into heaven. We can't work our way out of the garage and into the family room. We must come through Jesus and in Jesus. He is the only way. So will you trust Him? Will you believe on Him? Will you come to Jesus because you love Jesus? Would you stop being close and come in? Right now, right where you are, you can trust in Jesus. And when you do, when by grace alone, through faith alone, you enter God's kingdom through Jesus alone, then here's the takeaway from this scene. This is for the Christians. This is for followers of Jesus, lovers of Jesus, who are in the family room. God's supreme desire for you 
is to love him with all you are and all you have. And when you do, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't matter your neighbor's skin color. Doesn't matter their ethnicity. Doesn't matter their sexual orientation. It doesn't matter their socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter if they're easy to love or hard to love. When you love him with all you are and all you have, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. As a follower of Jesus, that's what you do. Because in the kingdom of God, it's an all-in, all-out love that's supreme. That's how he loves you into his kingdom. Romans 5 verse 8. He demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love elicits our love. His love initiates our love. His love empowers our love. His love motivates our love. Our love for him and our love for our neighbor. So let's get practical here. Let's get intensely practical here. Husbands and wives, the number one way you show your love for Jesus is loving your spouse like Jesus. Because before your husband or wife is your husband or wife, they are your neighbor in Jesus. Young people, when it comes to your parents, you honor them, you respect them, you obey them, because in doing so, you are loving your parents who are first your neighbor in Jesus. That mouthy coworker who's always dissing you, that pesky neighbor who's always borrowing stuff from you, and by the way, never returning it. That classmate that everyone loves to hate, your love for God as a follower of Jesus is shown in how you love the unlovely, the undeserving, the people who don't reciprocate your love. And then church. Our love for God is expressed in how deeply and intensely we love one another. So can I ask a question? When people walk into this place, do they sense that there's a difference here? The atmosphere is different. The feel is different. These people really love Jesus. And they show it in how they love the people of Jesus. Man, they're, they're like totally invested in their relationships with each other. They don't, just, they don't just walk into this room, you know, like two minutes before the service or eight minutes after the service starts. And they don't walk out of this room and leave the facility like, like within two minutes of the final amen. They're like, they, they really like hanging out with each other. They like being with each other. Do people think that about us? We cannot separate our love of God from our love of God's people. So do we 
Love our neighbor deeply and intensely like Jesus and for Jesus because love for God cannot coexist where you don't love what He loves. And that all begins with getting how deeply and intensely He has loved you. And when you get that He hasn't held anything back in loving you, you won't hold anything back in loving Him. So is there anything this morning, any part of your heart, any part of your mind, any part of your soul, any part of your strength that you are withholding from God and you're saying, God, anything but that? Is there anything about who you are or what you have that you aren't loving Him with? Because with Jesus, when you're in, you're all in. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The God who has brought you into His kingdom by His grace and for His glory and with His love is worthy of that. Because as 1 John 4 verse 19 says, we love because He first loved us. Love God and love your neighbor. Amen. Father, may you take your truth and implant it deep in our hearts, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Make us people who love Jesus. Make us people who love our neighbor like Jesus. And Lord, if, if there are people in this room this morning who are close, like really, really close, but they aren't in, I pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to the glory and grace of Jesus right now. And they would step across that line. They'd say, I'm done. I'm done playing. I'm done being close. I'm all in. Jesus, forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and Savior and King. I come to you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I'm yours. And as Christians, help our, help our family rooms to be a reflection of God's family room. Help our marriages to be a place where there is genuine love our families, parents, and children, genuine love. This, this room, this place, may we love each other genuinely as a reflection of what you've done for us in and through Jesus. Thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.